Welcome to the WattPod, a journey into the world of the most exciting clean tech startups, powering the energy transition and our carbon-free future. We will learn about the journeys of these companies and their founders, their backgrounds, the hurdles they face, those they have overcome, as well as the breakthrough innovations they are delivering. We will also explore what investors and innovators are looking for as we head towards a cleaner, more distributed, more flexible energy system. What innovations and investments are required to ensure access to cheap, reliable, and responsible energy? Our guests bring a range of expertise and insights that will help us understand what developments are taking place. I look forward to our discussions with them and this journey with you. Today, we welcome Anthony Tosh Chateau, co-founder and director at BoomPower. BoomPower is a SaaS platform for streamlining delivery of distributed energy projects, including rooftop solar, energy efficiency, battery storage, and VPPs. Tosh, welcome to WattPod. Thanks, Mitch. Good to be on board. Look, I thought we could just jump straight in and see how uh, BoomPower helps users buy, sell, and manage their energy assets, please. Yeah, no worries. So, yeah, the way the way we talk about it is um, BoomPower makes um, or helps anyone with skilled data entry sort of capabilities become uh, something like an energy consultant. So, using our software um, with kind of minimum training and support, someone can do an energy audit of a, um, a property that they own or manage. Um, they can um, run a business case for for solar power or energy energy efficiency retrofits. They can optimize their investment across a property portfolio and then you know, go through a, through a competitive procurement process. Now, our software helps people um, through that and helps people compare options side by side and apples for apples, which, which is often kind of harder than it sounds. We can also integrate um, via API with inverters and IoT devices to monitor um, outcomes. So, yeah, really any, any distributed energy project, whether it's one building or, or a thousand, um, can be handled end-to-end um, in the Boom uh, platform. I think that's it's such an interesting concept because it really gets to the heart of the energy transition and the distributed energy assets that we're going to go have that we're going to have going forward. You know, particularly the way that Boom Power empowers individuals, whether they're within an organization, um, a larger organization, or looking at something for themselves, to actually replace the energy consultants and. Alongside that, you know, the fact that you focused on things, not just on installations, but things like energy efficiency as well. You know, it's an often overlooked area of the energy transition, something that potentially doesn't get enough, enough focus really for how important it is and for the results it's due to deliver going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I should say, so actually we, we do now have energy consultants starting to use um, Boom Platform. So we, we, we kind of did ourselves out of a job as energy consultants, but we're also making energy consultants more efficient. But yeah, I think you know where, where you started. Your points dead dead right. We've um, the technology exists to get to zero emissions and to do that cost effectively. And I think really the challenge now around scaling is we how do we improve that customer experience end to end? How do we squeeze more value out of distributed energy um, assets for customers? Um, how, do we, how do we minimize that kind of marketplace uh, friction? And that's, yeah, that's obviously where, um, where BoomPower sits. It's interesting, when we, when we started um, uh, sort of pre-BoomPower as, as energy consultants, um, energy efficiency was, was um, still a real focus area for, 
um, for the sector and, and solar wasn't yet compelling. Um, and and even so, energy efficiency was was a really hard sell in that context. And it and it's been interesting as solar has become more compelling. We've found it's made customers more interested in energy efficiency and in um, the energy transition more broadly. So so now when people are, are installing solar power, they want to know about um, you know battery storage. Is it cost effective? How do I you know size my solar system and choose an inverter so that I'm ready for this kind of future energy market? Um, you know, and they even start asking about electric vehicles and electric uh, vehicle charging. So yeah, so solar has been a huge catalyst. I think um, for the distrib distributed energy. Um, market and you know as far as we can see it's it's full steam ahead from here you have talked um, and we've spoken before around solar being a gateway for people into that energy space now i just love that analogy you know the cost declines that we have seen in uh in assets you know in, in the actual hardware the, the solar hardware of the last 20 years um, and increasingly in storage going forward have really been a driving force particularly in australia with such a high proportion of rooftop solar etc for people to actually take an interest in uh, in energy and the problem that boom power is yeah. now tackling is though those more sticky you know stagnant soft costs as well will help to lower the overall uh, cost of delivering energy going forward you know historically people have found energy really complicated and and kind of boring and along comes solar and particularly when when solar became you know, really cost effective, it was just like this, this simple single thing that everyone could do that had a big impact. And so it, it really, it really talked, I think, to more of those like emotional drivers of decision um, making um, and got us away from trying to make, you know, the, the rational case for, for climate action or energy efficiency. So um, yeah, it's been fascinating to kind of see that evolution. Yeah, really, you know, our, our mission, yeah, we're very focused on, on reducing soft costs. We see that as a real a neighbor of, of kind of the speed of the transition from here. You know, we, we still find customers, um, people that have um, had energy audits done, for example, um, or sustainability reports. Um, and there's often a long list of actions and recommendations, but it's very hard for um, people to translate those into, um, into outcomes. Um, and so software like ours just, just kind of streamlines, streamlines that process, you know, potentially turns a, um, you know, a, a three to five year process into a, you know, one to two year um, process. We, we sort of start to think about boom as kind of like, you know, zero is to accounting as boom is to distributed energy. Zero kind of means that everyone can run their own books now. Like you, you still might hire a bookkeeper and your book bookkeeper or your accountant might be using zero for you. But like everyone's job has become more efficient. The business owner became more efficient, the accountant, the bookkeeper, because of this platform that connects everyone. So that's that's where we see Boom Power sitting. You know, what your software appears to do is is allow people to become evangelical, whether it's within their, you know, within their own organization or or with others to help actually promote that transition from a, you know, from the smaller end of town, let's say. And now that you've got an economic case, there's a far more rational argument for the majority of people to actually get involved, but they still may suffer a, you know, a lack of knowledge or a lack of expertise and cannot afford to go out and, and bring in a consultant into their business or, or to their home even. Boom Power allows that to happen. You know, what, what scale of organization is really your core focus for the software? Um, yeah, look, scale... Um, it 
the, the software store scales up up and down really really nicely. Um, probably the probably the main limitation is the the kind of energy intelligence that's baked into the software. If 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 I can characterize it like that, so anything that uses energy um, uh, uh, like a house is very easy to handle in our software. And and most people think, oh, you know, that's that may be limiting the market. But actually, a lot of a lot of, a lot of SMEs or commercial sites actually just use energy like like a big house. They just have like really big air conditioners or really big um, hot water systems, and uh, you know, lighting's fairly fairly standardised. So, um, yeah. So you know, scale we, we can help we can help people if they've got one building, if they've got a thousand, if they've got you know ten thousand, they want to retrofit over multiple years. Um, yeah, it scales up and down really nice. So we can work with people that don't have an energy background and get them up to speed and run their own projects. We've had um, asset managers and CFOs um, doing energy assessments and running their own business case reports. Um, or, you know, like a, a flake, we can, we can make the software available to sustainability teams and, and other energy consultants. So, yeah, it's, re it's really diverse. Um, it's probably easy to define the markets that we don't really play, and that's... Um, uh, things like the the kind of complex end of CNI, so where you've got like energy efficiency might require reworking a business process on a factory floor, for example, um, is is not something that's easy to standardise in software like we have. Um, or um, you know, high rise high rise to some extent often um, yeah once you get into centralised HVAC and hot water. Um, systems that can become a bit harder to do so rule of thumb standardized um, you know energy audits and, and business case assessments but but you know that, that leaves a huge part of the market um, for us and and you know historically a part of the market that's been less well served by by professional energy consultants that's purely because of the scale of those businesses when you're saying they're less well served yeah, absolutely. If you're if you're spending you know over a million bucks a year in energy, you you can probably afford to pay someone you know good money to figure out what you should do about that. Um, if you're spending ten thousand a year, even hundred thousand, you know, even even a few hundred thousand, the kind of ROI on you know hiring a professional to solve that problem for you, um, you know, degrades. Um, I mean, something something that yeah, something you said sort of triggered a thought. I mean, I think I think we. we it's sort of interesting. It's it's valuable to kind of pay homage to some of the history and um, you know, particularly in the solar market and some of the early adopters and evangelicals that pushed this were, you know, like I think people forget how recent this was. Um, you know, kind of like mid two thousands, people were connecting solar to the grid and effectively doing so without like formal permission or without agreement around how you know the excess solar energy will be treated. Um, and there's a huge amount of work involved just in trying to standardize that um, connection process and streamline that. Um, and so, yeah, we kind of look at the energy market now and we look at, you know, there's 101 different solar companies and brands and a lot of technologies plug and play. It's, it's, it's um, uh, yeah, it's, take, it's taken a lot of evangelicals, uh, if I can put it that way, like pushing, pushing projects and pushing standardization, pushing business process to get to this, to this point. Mm. And you know, if we could put some numbers around what those customers are seeing, you know, if we look at things that uh, that you cover end to end um, within the software, things such as auditing, delivering business cases, you know, the procurement which you mentioned, optimization as well. Um, once the installation is complete and up and running, 
what what does it tend to offer a customer in terms of time and money saved? Yeah, so we've we've done this work with um, some of our customers, and um, the estimate is we save about seventy five percent on on the kind of transaction overhead um, on a on a typical kind of energy retrofit program. So obviously that number is going to vary on based on you know how how big the retrofit program is and how complicated it is. But if you think like um, if you're going to um, you know, say retrofit a thousand social housing properties. Um, over the course of a couple of years, um, it's, it's, a, it's at least a um, you know five million dollar spend um, is not is you're you're up for, and most organisations are going to have to you know hire in specialist um, you know full time staff to handle a program like that, or yeah pay an external consultant to do it for them. So um, yeah, if if that organisation um, takes it on themselves and kind of upskills some of their internal um, staff to use the Boom platform, we think we can reduce that transaction overhead um, by about seventy-five percent. So yeah, really, really substantial savings. Instead of instead of spending a hundred thousand dollars on a um, you know managing a million-dollar program, you can probably get that done for you know for something like twenty-five using using Boom software. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a significant a significant saving, isn't it? And and that feeds directly into an LCOE for a project as well. Obviously, I mean, it reduces the the lifetime cost of energy for a consumer in that space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's like a, there's a speed of transaction thing there as well. Like we've found, um, you know, like it can take, it can take organizations a long time to, you know, figure this stuff out. Even if, even if there's a passionate group of people that, that want to do this, it takes a bit of figuring out and, um, you know, we can really accelerate some of that, early stage, almost like pre-feasibility stuff, you know, we can turn around pre, pre-feasibility, um, you know, desktop analysis in, in um, you know, days instead of, you know, weeks and months. Um, so, yeah, you, you just sort of accelerate, um, compress all the timeframes. You can, you can go, you know, from start to finish in three months instead of, you know, instead of 12 or 18. And, and what does it offer you, as a business, you know, within your own personal experience in terms of the optimization, the scalability of the number of projects that you can actually handle or see handled using the software? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I often get asked by friends and family to kind of help with solar. And yeah, I'll find I, I can be on a call with them, you know, assessing their roof, punching information about their bills, you know, uploading smart metadata if they've got it. I can turn around a really, um, really robust solar business case in in like five minutes as as we're having a conversation, um, and there's just no way yeah I, I could have done that without um, without the Boom software historically. Um, yeah, in terms of clients we serve, it means if if it's if it's desktop analysis only, we're not doing site visits, and if uh, once once data is in place place in terms of all the property addresses and some basic information about the properties at those um, addresses, you know I, I might be able to turn around. Um, you know, 30, um, 30 energy assessments in a day. Um, and that's, that's like a, a finished professional report that's, that's, you know, a PDF or a web link um, that kind of runs through scenarios. Um, that, that There's almost like an education tool in itself. Um, yeah, I can do 30 of those in a day instead of historically maybe, you know, maybe being able to turn out, um, you know, five in a day of, of, of kind of comparable um, quality. So yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge um, efficiency gain. I mean, that that's me as like a proficient energy 
kind of consultant and user of the software. So it's also not going to be as extreme for you know, someone new to it or someone that doesn't have a background in energy. But yeah, it's, it's really it's really exciting to, to, to kind of experience that efficiency gain from something that you built, um, something that you built, you know, with a team that you've you've sort of worked away at for, you know, for years, and you you get that real deep sense of satisfaction um, in in experiencing the outcome. Yeah, it's it's great to hear. I mean, you know, your journey from uh, energy consulting with your company, Energy for the People, towards Boom Power, really trying to tackle you know, head on this, this move towards a decentralized grid and in particular in reducing the soft costs uh, for, for customers. You, you weren't a software engineer. So do you want to take us a little bit around that journey and how you actually started to develop Boom Power? Yeah, look, um, yeah, it's a pretty interesting story, hopefully instructive for, for anyone that's thinking about, you know, um, doing something similar and, and starting a business. So um, if I go back 20, I think it was 2011, I was at the CSRO. Um, one of the co-founders in Boom Power, Alex Hulston, was in state government. Um, and and we, did, we didn't know each other at the time, but, but independently we realised we're both experiencing a, a kind of similar frustration where you know, we wanted to be um, you know, doing more to accelerate this transition to, to renewable energy. Um, I left CSRO, left state government, and bizarrely, we were both... We're both talking to um, really great lady Heidi Lee, who's now um, CEO at uh, Beyond Zero Emissions. I think she was volunteering there um, at the time. This is 2012. Alex and I were both having a conversation with her, saying, "Oh, you know, Beyond Zero Emissions really needs to focus on business model innovation. You know, we think like the technology is there; it's going to mature fast. Um, we'd really love to, you know, um, talk about that." And Heidi just got out of the way. She was like, actually, you two need to talk to each other because you're both, you know, passionate about this. Um, so out of that, we started Energy for the People, um, effectively like an energy consultancy, but, but really mission-driven. We really chased projects that we thought could move, move the market and, and ideas, really, that we thought could move the market. Um, and, you know, probably after, after three or four years of, of sort of intensive experimentation with different things, we landed, in, we landed on this idea that actually our core energy consulting service here is, um, is valuable and wouldn't it be great if we turn that into a software platform um, that you know, helps us scale, helps other, um, other people scale this transition. So um, uh, the, the story had a few twists and turns. We, we kind of, we, we shopped around for digital agencies and you know, trying to get support. We, um, we pitched for investment um we had we had a wonderful guy in the states say um you know guys I'll, I'll just if you move to the states i'll just give you 50 grand to start building this like i don't I, I, this wouldn't be like i don't want a percentage of your company like i, I just i like this and you know i'll give you some money and, and we both had kids we we're really settled in melbourne so it wasn't was an option but um and then we and then yeah so we, we sort of realized that that between between Alex and I, we didn't have those software skills. It was going to be difficult to raise money to hire external support. And then we had some really great conversations. Um, Andrew just said to us, guys, just give some equity to um, to a software guy, like to someone that can build this. And it was just this sort of light bulb moment. We got introduced by and another um, wonderful person, Carolyn Bayless, to um, a guy called David Perry, 
um, who, who's, an, who's now a CTO, who's effectively like, you know, built the Boom software by hand. He's a, um, he's a, he's a PhD in neuroscience, um, electrical uh, uh, engineering um, and computer engineering sort of undergrad, worked in energy markets, knows international software, particularly some of the data intensive stuff. It was just like this perfect person for, for what we needed. Because it's one of the real challenges with these things is the lost in translation stuff that happens. If you're trying to work with a software developer that, that doesn't understand energy markets, there's just this like huge learning curve um, that you've got to take them on. Whereas, you know, David just kind of knew all that um, you know, by virtue of his background and, and he was able to yeah, build some of those early iterations of Boom Power really, really fast. So yeah, a bit of a, bit of a long story, um, uh, Mitch, but it's, yeah, super interesting journey, lots of twists and turns and, um, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's all, all of the startup cliches are true. There's been a lot of, lot of highs and lows, and, um, but I, I definitely, yeah, I definitely do, do it all again. It's definitely worth it. I think that yeah, it's 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 a great story there, and maybe you can you can talk to us a little bit more about some of those aspects that you've mentioned, you know, particularly funding interest that you got from the US, which maybe has a slightly more developed uh, VC space, for example. How have you gone um, looking for investments since you've actually had something developed, and and what are your thoughts on the ecosystem, uh, particularly in Australia, and and how it may compare to other markets? Top of mind impressions are, yeah, the ecosystem um, in Australia still has a lot of maturing to do. Um, in some ways, the problems we saw in 2015, 2016, when this idea was nascent, um, it's definitely not as bad now yeah, in Australia for early stage funding as it was then, but it's, um, yeah, very, very similar problems. Um, so, you know, in 2015, 2016, we were getting told by, um, you know, angel VC um, impact investors that if we could build out the software and show that the software business was profitable, then we should come to them for investment. And we'll, and we'll, we'll sort of fairly new to this stuff, we'll scratch our heads and go, this sounds like, you know, <laughs> we have to build a profitable business on our own and then get investment. Why would we do that? If we had a profitable software business, we'd just go get a bank loan or, you know, it would just grow itself. Um, so yeah, we, we sort of we sort of did that the hard way. We we ended up, you know, we sort of bootstrapped a lot. We ended up landing um uh one round initially of government funding that, that became a second round. Um and that was really like the became like the funding backbone for, for a lot of the core features um in Boom. Yeah, if I if I fast forward today, I mean we're a um, you know, we, we sort of we often joke joke with people, we must be one of the only um profitable software businesses uh in Australia, but you know, it's still not a lay down as there um, to get funding. We're not we're not super active chasing at the moment. We're still looking at more, you know, strategic angel type investors. It's more about um, what the person brings than than the money um, for us. But yeah, from our own experience, I think there's still those there's still that gap in Australia of really really genuine early stage investment that's just backing people and ideas. Um, it, it happens, but it's rare and it, and it tends to be more kind of network driven. Um, and like, like literally this week, I've had um, conversations with two founders I know, not in the energy space, um, um, or one, yeah, one, one actually is in, in, in sort of um, energy, but more, more sort of developing world context. Um, they're both uh, overseas chasing funds 
from, from potential investors when you're speaking to them, what is the depth of understanding from those investors? You know, a VC can tend to be a very, have a very broad mandate in a number of different areas. Um, angel investors, you know, if they are investing what you, you're doing, it, they would generally, I would think, have a relatively specific knowledge or interest in that space. You, you hit the nail on the head there. I think the one of the things that comes up with the VCs, you know, they're, they're often trying to reduce things to you know some sort of transparent transparent metric or rule that they've set internally for what makes a good investment. And so, um, often, not always, there's, there's always exceptions, but often there's not that um, yeah domain domain capability to kind of scratch beneath the numbers and understand why the numbers. Um, are the way they are or how they could change as the market changes or how they might change as a product or service changes. Um, whereas angels, angels kind of get it, yeah, get it, get it way faster. Globally, there has been a huge uptick in, in terms of the dollars invested. The numbers I have show that this year so far already, we've had over $30 billion US invested into early stage startups in the energy space, in, 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 in climate tech. Um, it's almost double that invested in the whole of 2020. So Q4 still unreported. Ha have you, you know, have you seen that uptick in uh, in the ecosystem that that you're looking in? You know, there has been a lot of news focused on, particularly coming up to COP. You know, some 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 announcements, some very prominent Australian figures. Uh, you know, Mike Cannon Brooks with the 1.5 billion dollar commitment, which you know he expects to exceed. Andrew Forrest with you know, their green hydrogen plans. How, how are you seeing the market there? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I didn't realize the numbers were that big. Um, I mean, what, like, what, what I'm seeing, which, yeah, things that are getting funding are often, um, um, you know, uh, again, I, you know, probably going to be a little bit measured, but, you know, kind of like silver bullet type solutions. Um, green hydrogen is, is the big one. Um, uh, that that sort of you know captured public attention here in Australia, particularly on the back of you know um, Twiggy Forest and some yeah high-profile campaigning around you know green green hydrogen. Um, like at, at the moment, my inbox is like flooded with um, you know companies that are listed on the ASX that are that are in that space. Um, and and I've looked at those. Everyone 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 I know in the energy industry is looking at green hydrogen. Um, I'm yet to talk to someone who's like convinced that it's going to be a thing um, anytime soon maybe it'll be a thing in 2030 but it's, it's kind of like I can't I can't find someone who can spell out a use case to me that's going to be viable in the next 10 years so a lot of us are kind of scratching our heads thinking well where's that money going and um, what was the outcome going to be it sort of reminds me a bit of um, I don't know if you're involved in renewables and climate um, so to 2006, we had the, the whole Al Gore, you know, kind of story. Kevin Rudd got elected. Richard Branson at the time was sort of this really public figure globally campaigning on climate. And there was this huge surge of money into um, biofuels and, um, you know, algae and, and you know, like all, all that kind of microbial sort of activity, like soaking up carbon in ponds. And, um, and there was this real narrative that like, oh, the only way to decarbonize um, flight and these kind of heavy industries is with, um, you know, it's, it's with this kind of like biological um, sort of solutions, if you like. Um, all of that fizz. I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen it, but like 
BHP, Shell, like all, all those big guys were piling into this. Yeah, I'm sure a lot I, of money I was, was in, lost. I was in the and thick think, of it, Tosh. At, at that point in time, I was actually working for the world's largest uh, biofuels trader, um, setting up supply chains for uh, waste feedstocks and uh, following very closely, you know, alternative feedstocks for everything from Jotropha, which was going to be a, a big hit to the algae biofuels, you know, speaking to, to startups um, in that space, you know, the likes of Solarzyme, et cetera, at that time. Um, so yeah, really, really in the thick of it. Well, you know, you know more than me, what, what happened? Well, the market, what happened to the money, Mitch? Is it- the market developed. I mean, it's still a very active market in somewhere like um, Europe, but, you know, it's a legislated mandated market and it doesn't really exist without those legislations. And you've got a huge number of other issues such as deforestation for palm oil and, you know, soy as well. So, um, you know, part of what I did is work with the um, the Renewable Energy Directive and, and actually was the chairman of the board for that for a while, um, helping set up traceability and supply chains. And, you know, the market was left to do that itself really, uh, but it was a fizzle at the, in the end, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Um, you know, all the really sexy stuff kind of disappeared, but you're still blending in, you know, ethanol and, and bio, biodiesel into, into um, your old gas guzzlers. The, the oh, main takeaway is where, you know, we're moving now very much more clearly towards an electrified future. And electrification, I strongly believe, is, is the way forward. Yeah, I mean, th- this is something I'm, I'm finding fascinating. We're, we've, we've had this history, it's, it's all very recent history, We've seen the emergence of Tesla um, has completely sort of, you know, changed the narrative around, um, you know, transport. Um, uh, you know, they've just done enormous heavy lifting on solving the kind of emissions in transport problem. Um, you know, batteries coming down the cost curve, energy density is improving, short range electric shipping is viable. You know, BYD is doing um, a phenomenal number of electric buses every year globally. Um, they're doing trucks. They're doing machine, like the there are there are electric um, mining trucks in the pipeline. There's like all this sort of compelling momentum around um, batteries. And here's Australia looking at you know billions of dollars either in sort of you know capital or subsidy over multiple years in into hydrogen. And you said, well, where, where's that all going to go? I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's demand for this stuff that I don't know about, but I'm, I'm not seeing where it's going to go. I mean. Long, long term, there probably is a market for, you know, for this, um, you know, into, you know, into parts of Asia and, you know, kind of like energy dense um, countries that maybe aren't well endowed with renewables are potentially going to have to, you know, import um, energy dense fuels from other countries. So, yeah, there's going to be use cases, but it's, it feels like to me there's, there's a huge disconnect between like the, the scaling known solutions, which is really like, sort of like, the obvious, the obvious stuff that I think should be like eighty or nine percent of our focus, versus, um, you know, still shooting for moonshots um, that that don't have, you know, obvious short or long term um, payoffs. And I think it, it's sort of encouraging, yeah, to kind of hear a bit of what Mike Cannabrooks is saying. He seems to be a bit more balanced in that in that dialogue and talking about. You know, yeah, scaling known solutions, improving the customer experience. So hopefully, you know, hopefully some of that kind of washes through, um, and you know, we don't end up with a bunch of you know green hydrogen white elephants um, in in five years' time to deal with. No, look, I, I 
I'm somewhat on side with you. I do believe that there is a place for hydrogen. I think that there is a lot of, there's a huge hopium premium around it at this, in the moment, but I think it's, it's quite specific to the market here as well. You know, I do think it earns a place, but you've got all sorts of issues with um, energy density, et cetera, of hydrogen and, you know, the, the simple factors, the difficulty of transporting it, um, the infrastructure required for liquefaction, gasification. It's, it's, um, you know, it's a, it, it is a difficult, um, there's a lot of difficulties in that space, but there still is a place, but I, I'm a believer that actually you will see things such as reshoring of manufacturing in certain countries where you can provide really cheap um, renewable energy going forward. And that may need to be supported by obviously um, storage of some sort. And, you know, things where like, like steel making, for example, um, I do believe hydrogen would, will pay, play a role there going forward, unless there's another technology which I'm just yet unaware of that would be able to actually help produce steel from iron ore um, without, you know, the, the, to actually produce the, te the, the temperatures required to do that. Um, hydrogen seems quite well placed to do something like that at the moment. Well, Mitch, I'll tell you a funny story. So like over the last, um, you know, three or six months, I've kind of really pursued this interest. I've probably gone, you know, some might say, Mitch, I've gone a bit too deep um, the, on this sort of uh, question, but um, in my in my travels, I found it's amazing that this stuff exists. I found a paper from the early 1900s um, published by sort of like quintessential American industrialists. Um, I think you know many of us will have a sort of picture in our mind. Um, and and in 1905 or, or whatever it was, they were traveling the world um, to learn about um, uh, experiments in uh, turning iron ore to steel are happening around the world. And it's fascinating to read the paper because um, countries around the world at that time were all experiencing problems with um, coke and coal supply and sort of energy supply um, that we're experiencing today, but, but for like really different reasons, you know, like that weren't concerned about climate change or, or things like that, but, but maybe because, you know, shipping, shipping costs or transport costs were unrealistic. You had some of them wanted to make steel in a place, um, you know, no way of getting coke and coal, had to innovate um, in the furnace to, to sort of deal with that. So there are, there are examples documented in this paper of, um, you know, design and iteration going on in these furnaces and, and um, some furnaces being quite successful over multiple years turning iron ore uh, into iron and into steel um, without the need for coal uh, of any kind. So electric, electric furnaces mm. um, and carbon content coming from things like biochar. And I, I find that fascinating. It's fascinating history. I think there's a real, you know, you know when if, if you look at sort of the history or the literature around um, sort of innovation, these kind of stories are not uncommon where, you know, solutions for modern problems were actually being explored 50, 100, um, even sort of three, 300, 500 years ago. Um, and it often takes a bit of digging to uncover them. I, I'm not putting my hand up and saying, you know, hey, I've got the blueprint for like solving this. Uh, I'm not, I'm not that foolish, but, um, you know, we have, we have really recent 
history of, of this kind of stuff, you know, the whole SpaceX story and Elon just sort of looking at, at how the design of rockets just hadn't evolved in like 50, 60 years. And just, you know, and obviously an incredibly um, intelligent and well-resourced and, and all those things uh, sort of person, but, but an outsider, like someone that, that really didn't, you know, he's lots of background in physics, but no idea about rocket design. And he's able to look at that and go, hang on, this hasn't changed in 50, 60 years. Like maybe we could do this differently. I, I really feel like, you know, green steel, maybe the green hydrogen story in totality is a bit like this. You know, we've got a bit too much, um, bit too much focus on, you know, the, yeah, the, the, the magic bullet, silver bullet kind of solution and enough time being spent on, on reflection and creativity and sort of thinking a bit deeper about, okay, like, you know, is, is there a better way to design, um, design the system and when to kind of get the outcome that we want. Because I mean, you know, at a really basic level, you can build a lot of stuff without steel. You can actually, you can actually use raw timbers or laminated timbers to do eight story buildings. Like there's a lot of material substitution innovation that could go on even before you start thinking about making the steel itself uh, green. So yeah, look, I, I, I could talk forever about Mitch. I'll, I'll, I'll pause for breath and, you know, let, let let you ask another question or have your say if you like yeah i mean i'd love it if you could share with me that that paper if you've still got access to it just so that i can maybe inform myself a little bit further it'd be really interesting to have a look at it um i mean yeah, while, so I'll pop it through. while while we're while we're you know to bring it a little bit back on track um you know i think obviously you're very focused on on the fact that you strongly believe there will be a far more decentralized grid going forward how, when you're looking at that that network uh, of um, you know of distributed assets producing and storing energy, how how do you think that 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 actually um, places economically um, away from a, a decentralized grid? What what's the best outcome for you in a decentralized grid to deliver the most economic uh, cost of electricity, taking into account things like grid resilience and and taking into account that the, the actual energy infrastructure is you know one of the largest pieces of infrastructure including the poles and wires globally how does it stack up once you once you factor in those distributed assets yeah look this is i mean my mind would be a little bit uh, probably australia centric but but i think there are yeah maybe parallels for the market so i think i think the way i think about this in australia is like um, if we if we had all the technology that exists today today, um, but we didn't have the grid, how would you go about doing this? How would you go about generating the energy we need, um, sharing it, storing it, you know, creating that kind of resilient grid that you you mentioned? And I th I think if you do that thought experiment, you think, oh, actually, we'd we'd kind of build the grid out backwards. We'd we'd kind of start at the the extremities would probably supply a lot of, um, you know, I think like you know, regional communities, rural farming communities, remote communities. We'd we'd be supplying these people, um, these customers, with um, either standalone power systems themselves individually, potentially, um, or in clusters. If you've got you know, nodes of 10, 50, you know, five thousand households and businesses in a cluster, you, that would probably become, um, you know, standalone. Um, self-sufficient sort of units of, of energy. Um, um, and, you know, as you build the grid backwards, you, you would kind of hit the limits of that approach. You would start, you know, hitting 
um, suburbs and cities where the, the, the density of energy demand was too great and um, it, did, you, you know, it wasn't economic to just, to just be self-sufficient and it made more sense to actually connect multiple you know, pointed demand with multiple pointed gener generation. And I think, I think where you end up with that thought experiment is kind of like um, dense energy zones, you know, like, like, like um, you know, cities and industrial zones connected to um, centralized uh, renewables, potentially centralized kind of on-site storage as well um, you know, to balance out the grid and provide resilience and stuff. But, you know, anything kind of suburban, you know, suburbs and suburban fringe and out is, is potentially completely self-contained microgrids standalone, or, or, you know, there, there might be two or three suburbs that are, that are connected and shared for whatever reason. So, um, now that's not, I'm not saying like that's, that will be the future. I, I just think it's an interesting thought experiment because um, it, it forces you to, to, uh, I guess, ignore that, you know, sunk costs in the grid um, and see it as, you know, it's, it's an asset that's there by historical circumstance and there are people that get a, um, a healthy return on, on that sunk cost. Um, but, it, you know, the fact that it's there is not necessarily, you know, um, efficient or useful when you think about the future of the energy market. G given, that, given that it is there and, you know, maybe if it's there, we should make use of it. I think we still need that discipline of like, well, we should make use of it at the right price. You know, at, at some point, the cost of providing um, backup and resilience from the grid um, won't, won't stack up, I, I, I believe. I think um, the price of battery manufacturing has come down enormously. We're not yet seeing that price wash through into the retail price to the consumer. Um, but when it does, I, I, I find it hard to see um, a future where the grid competes um, with, you know, solar storage, smart energy management, um, the car as a mobile battery pack. And, um, or, or another way of looking at it, the only way the grid competes is to drop, it, drop its price and to really erode those returns um, that you know the the either the private or also public monopolies get on on those assets. The only way they'll be able to stay competitive is to keep dropping that that price in response to um, in solar storage demand management. Really clear, and you know, solar, wind, they're the most competitive forms of of new energy, um, even against you know existing uh, thermal generation. But we've also seen slowing cost declines in, in hardware. How do we ensure that renewables continue moving down the cost curve? And I ask you this question specifically because soft costs are now such a large proportion of the overall cost of, of energy for new installations of renewables. Mm -hmm. um, but also because you know, you're really focused and your software is really focused on reducing those soft costs. So wh what do you see going forward in terms of how renewables continue to move down the cost curve? Yeah, I think um, at maybe it made the big, big end of town a quick reflection. Like I think it still seems to me 
I, I did work on this as a consumer advocate, maybe, you know, was it 12, 15 years ago? It still seems like a problem around um, like how we bring on uh, renewables in the market. It still seems like there's not a great process for um, um, sort of like that transmission network price signal, if you like, and, and kind of sharing the cost of accessing the grid across multiple generators. It still seems like there are some problems around, um, uh, you know, essentially it's like a wild, wild west, um, you know, race to connect to the grid and to hell with everyone else. And if we had a bit more of a collaborative, you know, process for how that happened, we could probably reduce costs for, for everyone. Um, so yeah, sort of, yeah, I guess a soft cost of that big end of town. At our end, um, yeah, I think, um, you, you know, a lot of it comes down to just business efficiency, workflow efficiency within um, solar companies in particular, but also, you know, all of the um, you know, balancer solution stuff that has to happen. Um, software like ours is obviously part of that. Um, I think I think part of what we might see to bring down those soft costs is, um, you know, better better integration of the solution and the supply end. And if, if I sort of step out of our world sort of directly and say, like, you kind of look at um, Tesla set this precedent now that they've got a solar business, they're doing their own inverters, they've also got the battery storage in the cars, like all of a sudden they're providing a huge chunk of that solution under one uh, roof. Um, I think we've seen uh, Hyundai announced recently they're, they're offering, um, you know, solar and EV and I think battery storage as a package. Um, I'm sure I've seen um, in the UK, it might, it might have been Hyundai there as well, but yeah, certainly, certainly like, yeah, someone who's not Tesla also doing this. Um, I think that it's that kind of solution integration that we'll, we'll, we'll see another step change in um, inefficiency. Um, and um, you know, I guess the, the holy grail is really, you know, one-stop shop for, for complete home or business retrofit, whether it's, you know, getting the lighting change or insulation stored or solar on the roof, there's, there's kind of one entity that can assess that property, figure out what the right thing to do is for that customer, you know, and get it done as an integrated, um, integrated piece, you know, and then you, you, you might have, you know, um, you know, sort of trades coming and going um, on a building site, doing things bit by bit. You've, you've got kind of, you know, one team that comes on and, and delivers that solution end to end in, a, in an efficient way. Okay, great. We're going to wrap up now with our what's up section. So this is just three quick questions. I ask you just for a one sentence response. You ready to go? Let's do it. Great. So first question, who stands to gain the most from the energy transition? Tesla shareholders. Even after the recent run up, huh? <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a way to go, I think, I think Mitch. I, I, I don't think it's well appreciated how, yeah, how, how far ahead they are. Well, question two, if you weren't powering the energy transition, what would you be doing? Farming, uh, probably fruit and uh, chickens and ducks. Lovely. Last question. Name one company you think is powering the energy transition and what you admire about them. Can I caveat this? You cannot say Tesla since you've already mentioned them, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 one, yeah, the one that springs to mind for me is, um, is it's actually Jet Charge. Uh, and I know, I think Tim, Tim Washington was your first, first interview. Uh, yeah, Tim, Tim and I met when he, he was a one-man band. And um, 
yeah, I've kind of watched the way his his approach, what he does, and you know, he he was installing EV chargers before, like you know, anyone I I even knew uh, was talking about electric um, vehicles. So he he came at that a long way out, and his yeah, I think he's he's become like a real powerhouse, um, you know, in in Australia's energy market transition, a sort of a bridge between, um, you know, the kind of the 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 solar the solar story in distributed energy and, and the kind of EV story um, that's emerging. No, I mean, Tim is a you know, powerhouse, like you mentioned. He was a great guest as well and a really inspirational speaker. We're really lucky to have him on, on the WattPod. So thanks for mentioning. If anyone does want to go back, he was our first guest and you could find the, the, um, the, the podcast that we did with him um, on, on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Um, Tosh, co-founder and director of Boom Power. It's been great having you on. I, I've loved riffing with you on this, um, on this podcast. Thank you very much. Mitch, thanks so much for having me on board. And um, yeah, good on you for, for having a crack. And um, yeah, love, love to see what, what comes next for what pod. Thanks, Tosh. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, or leave a comment on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Spotify, or Google.